everyone. Welcome to another episode of TechNet Radio, Virtually Speaking. I'm Yang Cho, a, techno a technology evangelist at the Microsoft. Today, we're going to talk about a recently published uh, white paper, still very hot. It's called the Release Pipeline Model. And uh, online with us are the two authors. One is Michael Green from Microsoft and another, uh, Stephen Moroski from Shaft. I'm going to start with Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Hey, Yang. Thanks for having me on. Great, great to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Sure. Uh, I'm a principal engineer on the community engineering team at Chef. Uh, and what that means is I work in the open source space uh, on anything in the Chef ecosystem. And Chef is an automation platform. And we help you deliver environments more consistently and meet all the uh, security and audit requirements and get you, to, get you down the road in that continuous delivery and DevOps space. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good to have you. Hello, Michael. Are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hey, Good that's our old friend, Michael Green. Michael, uh, tell us a little bit, uh, what's your recent work? Uh, so I've been uh, still in the CAT team, just like last time that we talked. Uh, you know, I think last time we were the Windows Server System Center CAT team, and uh, with the evolution of Azure Stack and things like that, uh, the new division name is Enterprise Cloud Group or Enterprise Cloud Engineering. So we're the ECG CAT team. Uh, but our role is very much the same. Go out and identify where we can make a contribution to the community um, to, to kind of help better evolve uh, the thought space and gather as much information as we can from customers and bring that back in, in, into engineering and help us figure out where we can go from here. Uh, oh, so great. it's a really, really fun role. Well, thank you to uh, to join the show. I know uh, you guys recently uh, done a lot of great work and published a white paper, the uh, pipeline release model. Now, first, uh, since we have Stephen on the line and Chef, we know Chef had a lot of contribution in terms of the DevOps, the the DevOps field. So, uh, I want to ask Stephen. So, what's Chef and DevOps got to do with this release pipeline model? So, it's actually got a lot to do with this model. Uh, so one of the core parts of Chef is infrastructure as code. And uh, one of the key factors or, or kind of the, the key principle to being able to effectively deliver infrastructure as code is being able to build a release pipeline for, uh, for your infrastructure. Now, that idea is kind of stolen out of, out of the dev space. And when we, so when we start talking about infrastructure as code, we're actually treating our, our server environments and our infrastructure environments as they are, as they're a software project. And so we, we've adapted some of these pipeline processes to how we deliver code, and it makes your experience with Chef, with the Zarek State configuration, with any, any really systems management stuff, a much more delightful experience. I see. Now, uh, release pipeline model, sort of self-explanatory, uh, but Michael, in terms of infrastructure as code, because I heard this term and a lot of people at this time are kind of pursuing this this uh, you know this technology or this methodology if you will now when we develop code how how would that feed in into this release pipeline model and what what are the major components of it the way we've broken it down you're absolutely right uh, I think you highlighted a couple of things there one is this isn't necessarily a new idea right so this idea I, I should point out first of all uh, that a lot of the ideas that went into the white paper came from other people um, and, and we're sort of saying if you are looking at this as an IT operations professional and you're trying to make sense of what does all this DevOps space even mean to me, 
especially if your organization is not quite ready for the cultural change yet, but you want to be that passionate person that starts to lead the change, but you're coming at it from operations, how do you even sanitize how these things apply to you? Um, so we call out in the beginning of the document uh, a number of different books that are references to go read, um, to, to kind of dig into each of these individual subjects in more depth. But there's four sections of the paper that we decided to separate core concepts that just make it a little bit easier to wrap your head around. Um, so we, we kind of call that uh, source, build, test, release. And if you can kind of get your head around each of those major subjects, the way we go through it in the paper is what are these topics and then what does that mean to you as an operations person so if you take something like source control as an example uh, as in, on the developer side of the house you're absolutely already familiar with that and i'm sure you've used version control in many different varieties uh, in application release in the past so the idea is what does source control mean for an IT operations professional. And the way that, uh, that we kind of help explain that is, well, think about how you do change management today. So how do you even keep track of what changed and when did it change? And when did that change actually go into production? Um, and how do you keep track of, and I can tell you the answer right now is we do our best, right? We, <laughs> we kind of go through a lot of different types of processes, depending on which methodology you might subscribe to. But in many cases, uh, the, the processes that we do our best to define in the beginning start to fall apart over time. And uh, it can even lead to very combative situations that we've all experienced in operations in the past. So uh, we kind of take each piece of, of the pie like that and just describe exactly what does that mean to operations. Uh, Stephen, so, mm -hmm. so what's the overall look like? I mean, where do I start? If I want to start building this release pipeline, where do I start? And you start right at the beginning with source control. And that is the, you know, that's the foundational piece. That is what allows you to start working with uh, kind of the known starting place. And um, it provides a, it provides a kind of a conversation point for everybody on the IT operations team to start with. Because it's not, hey, go to this file share and grab uh, grab the version of the script that's .old, but not .old.old, .old, you know. <laughs> so source control gives you, uh, gives you a way to identify what the current version is of things, what's current out in production, what I'm working on new. Um, the other thing, one thing that we've actually found out uh, from watching the industry is that uh, the use of source control by IT operations personnel is the number one predictor of, of, uh, of highly performant IT operations and highly performant business. And that's been actually uh, found through the state of DevOps report and surveys that they've done over the last few years. And so it's actually more important for IT operations personnel to use source control than developers to do so. And it's critically important for developers to do so. So you can kind of uh, take from that what you will. I see. Oh, so I imagine with source control, then uh, certainly Chef play a big role there. But uh, my question is, Michael, I have Exchange in place already, and does that mean I need to scrap what I have done? Or, I mean, how do I integrate? Can I integrate it in? Yeah, this is a popular discussion point, and I think it's because the industry is uh, 
very quick to go all the way down the path and say everything should just be immutable and we get into this pets versus cattle analogy and so we start to think well if everything was a web server and i could just deploy it and i've got scripts to maintain it but then if i want a big change i can just do a blue green type cutover right i can uh, define what i wish the environment looked like instead of what it is today and deploy that out and then just cut over at my load balancer, scrub the old environment, and who cares, move forward. And the reality is uh, that's not going to work 100% of the time. Uh, if you look at workloads like Active Directory and Exchange and SharePoint, we really have to start serving our role as architects and designing systems that are going to account for systems that we want to maintain in a more uh, in a more prescribed sort of way. And I'll get into what that means. Um, but we know they're going to be long-term, right? They're going to be in our environments for a long time. So we look at these incremental change releases as opposed to uh, being able to just retire the the whole environment and start over at every release. So would I start there if this was a new project? I, I don't think I would tackle those projects first. Uh, I would start by looking at something that's probably a greenfield environment or something that is immutable where I can easily start introducing new iterations and build up the muscle that understands this is how I describe things as code. This is how I write test code. This is how I build uh, scripts that support these projects. And once you've got a better feeling for how to, to use a build process to manage your infrastructure, and you've got that, re- once you really consider yourself more of an expert in this space, then you can start saying, okay, well, let's go back to some of our long-term environments and you know, maybe we don't tackle the the whole thing at once. Maybe we say, okay, well, in terms of disaster recovery, if I had to rebuild my exchange environment tomorrow because something terrible went wrong and I lost my hardware or something, um, how can I at least accelerate portions of that? You know, what's it look like to redeploy those nodes? What's it look like to reconstruct those exchange nodes so that I can then restore my data back into a known good environment? Um, there's a lot of different ways you can test it, or I'm sorry, that you can create it, but uh, to me, uh, as soon as you start moving through source control and you're versioning your changes, so now you've got a good historical record of what happened in your environment when, uh, the immediate next thing to get your head around is tests. And to me, if, if I were to describe to somebody what's the benefit of using this process instead of the tried and true ITIL processes that we've been familiar with to this point, uh, it is the confidence to go into production and release a change knowing that it's going to be successful. So uh, if you're familiar with Pester, uh, I continue to recommend if I, if I were looking at this or if I were looking at my career in general and saying, what's a skill that I can go learn in 2016 that will prepare me for the wave of change that DevOps is bringing to our industry? Uh, take a look at Pester and start thinking about how you can apply that to your environment. There's something called the operational validation framework, which is the idea that can I write pester uh, tests that will then go not, we think about test code in application space as it's going to look at a function in a script and make sure that it returns what we expect. Test uh, uh, Pester for operational validation would mean let's go check in this Active Directory environment and make sure, can I authenticate? Uh, if, If I expect to see a uh, given set of OU, uh, uh, an OU structure and a, a set of group policy objects to be in place. Are they there? And, and is that functioning correctly? Do I have the correct number of sites and things like that? Is DNS working the way it's supposed to? So really checking 
yes, this environment behaves the way I expect to. So now, even though in the past I could never recreate a test environment that even began to mimic production, that's something we've all faced in the past, now with the ability we have in public cloud, we can say, I know exactly what I have in prod because here's the historical record described in code. So let's deploy that out to a public cloud, introduce the change that we're considering, which could be a security update, it could be an incremental change, uh, maybe a new zero day just surfaced and we need to go set a registry key throughout this environment. And then I can run those validation scripts and say, yes, this environment still behaves the way we expect. Now, we're still human, right? So we might have literally hundreds of validation tests that we run before we're willing to go to production. And we go to production and something fails and we have an outage. So how do we handle that? And I think this is a very interesting problem space. Uh, as you look at the, the capabilities of cloud environments, uh, software as a service, and then you move towards platform as a service where you know, you're building an app on top of an app, a web app or database as a service, and then you go to infrastructure as a service, there you have the ability to use things like configuration as code to say, I've got regulatory requirements, so I require a degree of isolation, so I can use configuration as code uh, to further... Um, further evolve how I can manage the fabric of this hosting environment, but it's almost like we can't help ourselves. Like we, we deploy those IaaS VMs, and just out of habit, we want to either remote desktop into it and build it manually the way we think is best, uh, or we move to command line driven change, but we still just go do it in a haphazard manner that we believe, you know, put, put that in server the way we think it should be, but we do it manually. So it's that process of Everything I do is, is uh, first tested and, and validated before it goes to production. And to me, that's the number one thing, uh, looking at this model that, that's so different than what we've been doing before. Okay. Well, let's, let's recap a little bit. So we're, we're talking about building a release pipeline. And uh, there's a four component, which is a source, mm -hmm. build, test, release, right? And as Stephen uh, mentioned that we should start with source control if we start from brand new. But you also mentioned it is, uh, there's a ways for us to integrate it in. Now, uh, I want to bring the question to Stephen before, uh, hopefully you guys can show us some, uh, some the pipeline that you guys built. Stephen, so since we have Chef in it, and Chef to me is configuration management, is uh, automation, uh, is, is a lot of things sort of like in the DevOps space, now I imagine uh, continual deployment. This definitely is is in it, and I also imagine there's definitely uh, integration with Azure, with cloud. Yeah. So um, with the, with the paper, we we actually struggled to stay kind of uh, a little higher level, and we we pointed out some tools in the various in the various stages that you might want to look at. Um, but the model can be applied across any you know, kind of uh, just about any tool chain. We, uh, you can do it with uh, TFS you can, and release management. You can do it with Chef and Chef Delivery. Uh, you can do it with DSC. You can do it with Chef. You can do it with Chef and DSC because that's they just work better together. Um, it, you could use Git. You could use TFS for source control. You could use Mercurial or Subversion. There, there's a whole host of, of tools and things in this space um, but the, more, the key part is really getting these core concepts down so you can make determinations and evaluate those specific technology choices. 
And yeah, that that's one thing, you know, as an IT ops, that my background's in IT operations. I liked playing with technology. And so, you know, I could go find a tool and do stuff with it. Um, but in order to really get the benefit from this model, you have to kind of take a step up and look at the whole, um, as a whole process overall. So it's less about specific technology and more about the concept of how we apply that technology. I see. Um, just one last question to Michael before you guys can show us some uh, some pipeline model you guys have built. Um, so. Michael, previously we talked a lot about automation. We talked about asset, putting in uh, Azure automation. We talked the run book, all those integration. And I assume this, they are all applicable to the pipeline model that we're going to build. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I would, I would take this one step further even. Um, and I've been talking about this a lot lately. And, I, and this kind of keys off of what Stephen was just talking about. In our careers, over and over again, we find ourselves defining our value to our organization in terms of what a product offers. You know what I mean? So I'm the exchange guy. I'm the SharePoint guy. I'm the Active Directory guy. I'm the you know SCOM guy, whatever the case may be. And uh, you really, in this case, want to have an open mind. And so I don't think it's possible. It might be possible, but it's uh, maybe not even smart to say, as we go down this path, we're going to define, uh, you know, a, a fixed set of products or tools, and we're only going to use these things going forward. Uh, it's you really don't want to trap yourself like that. You want to have this open mind that says, "I'm willing to look at anything that makes us more effective and more valuable to our organization." So, if we go find a community project that takes something that previously required us to take 25 steps or half a day of human time and uh, you know this somehow reduces that to three steps and you know no time because we can include that in our build so just having an open mind even though that person you know maybe didn't have the last 15 good ideas uh, they brought something interesting to the table and so yeah we'll take a look at it and as a matter of fact since we have uh, everything that it takes to rebuild this server environment everything that it takes to validate that this project still works the way we expect it's easier to introduce new and interesting tools into the process and figure out, um, you know, how do we how do we make ourselves more valuable to the organization every day? So I like to start thinking about that as as an architect. My organization has invested in a variety of platform choices up to this point, right? How how we deploy things, how we monitor things, uh, how we back things up. And as you're looking at new capabilities, so things that you and I have talked about before, Azure Automation, now we've got uh, OMS Log Analytics, we've got Azure Site Recovery, we've got Azure Stack coming at us, and we're trying to figure out how do we take all of the pieces of our environment that we've built for the last 10 years and now look at these cloud offerings and say, how do we stitch these things together in a way that is not just changing tools, in a way that's really brings more value out of my team to my organization. Uh, and I think this pipeline model actually allows us to introduce new concepts while building better answers to our old questions and solving our old problems in new and interesting ways. Uh, so to give you an example of that, previously, if we deployed a new project, let's say it was for SharePoint, we went through and, and you know, it's, it's almost like we started off with the easy button 
you know, where we automated our deployment of our servers and things like that. And then when we handed off from the deployment team to the operations team, we traded an easy button for a rabbit's foot and just said, good luck. Here you go. See how, see how this works, right? Uh, and, and now we can take a look at this and say, okay, everything's described in source. So we know exactly how the machine is built. Why not take that same opportunity and take the run books that are going to maintain this environment on day 30 and day 100 and two years from now? We know we're going to have to patch. We might have service account pass surface uh, surface service account passwords uh, to be rotated. Uh, you might have application requirements that say uh, logs have to be rolled or you know anything like that. Let's write that in script. Let's store those as runbooks that can be executed either in our cloud environments or in a hybrid capacity in our data centers. Uh, and let's include test code for those things so that we, if, if we have to later evolve those things, we can do so with confidence without breaking what's in production and describe that end-to-end. -end. So when I look at how do I compare something like DSC or uh, a chef cookbook or whatever the case may be, to something like Azure Resource Manager templates where I'm describing software-defined networking and I'm describing storage and I'm describing uh, Azure automation capabilities where I'm uh, scheduling runbooks and things like that. Let's just go ahead and from the point where we're ready to release this project into production, let's prescribe out what's going to happen a month from now and have those things tested in Q&A before we ever go live. Uh, and that way, when that day comes and we're going into production, we have confidence that we're releasing into production something that we can sustain long term and, and not just settle with, okay, well, now we know how to deploy this. Great. You know, good luck, ops team. See, see how this goes. Uh, well, that's a lot of talking, Michael. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, so you guys have something to show us. I would like to see. You know, because yeah, yeah. We, I'd like to see they put it in action and how we can actually benefit from the pipeline model. You bet. Uh, so I've, I've got a series of screenshots that I can kind of talk through that describe, because there's a lot of moving pieces you can imagine to an end-to-end -end release process. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'll just take, I'll kind of go through some screenshots of different things that take a look at how these pieces of the puzzle all fit together, and then Stephen and I both can kind of talk through each phase. Please. So I'm going to pivot over to my monitor a little bit, but uh, you guys should be able to see the slides on the screen. So this first screenshot is actually of uh, source control. And to create this environment, I just use TFS Express. Uh, it's a free download for five or fewer users. And if you're just getting your head around what do these things look like and how would I use it to manage infrastructure, it's a nice option to go with. The other thing I would say about this, though, is there's probably someone in your organization who is already using source control and using a build service. Uh, and I definitely recommend trying to align with them if possible. So if you have people who own applications, as an example, uh, if they've got source control and they've got a build service, then make friends and, and try to play nicely so that uh, you're, you know, the pipeline might look more like a funnel <laughs> we're driving things into. Uh, so this is source control, and this is just an Azure Resource Manager project. Uh, so in this case, it's really just saying, um, here's what I want to deploy into Azure, and here are all the components of it, and I'm applying that same principle here. So we can think about Azure Resource Manager as configuration as code as well. It's describing an end-to-end -end infrastructure, not just a server build. And in this case, I've pre-staged uh, some DSC configurations in Azure Automation. So when the virtual machine in this project does get deployed, it just bootstraps it in and delivers the configuration that way. 
the next thing to look at is if I was to edit that Azure Resource Manager deployment template, and in this case, I'm just using Visual Studio Code, uh, what exactly does that look like and what does it mean to introduce a change? So I picked on a really easy change in this screenshot. I'm really just saying, you know, previously for this project, we supported 2008 R2, 2012, and 2012 R2. We're ready to retire 2008 R2 from our environment. So we just take that away as an option in the deployment parameters. But this could easily mean I want to uh, add some additional storage. I want to change my network configuration. Maybe I want to change uh, anything from how the machine that's being deployed uh, is configured to the capacity options for something like a web hosting service or database as a service uh, that's part of the overall project. So it could be really anything uh, as configuration as code. So. I like, I think, I think Stephen actually used this at the PowerShell Summit. It was something along the lines of, there's no bad source control as long as it supports Git. <laughs> no, the, uh, so it doesn't matter what source control you use, but you should use Git. That was okay. the, uh, because, and, and the big, and the main reason there, it doesn't matter what you use internally. It does matter that a whole lot of open source projects in the configuration management and systems management space are hosted out on GitHub and use Git. So being comfortable with Git, uh, being the PowerShell docs, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff in our space is hosted on GitHub. So having a comfort level with Git is a definitely a good thing. Yeah, I 100% I agree. Uh, so in this in this set of screenshots, really what we're showing is what does it look like before you check into source code? What's happening on your workstation? Uh, you know, this stuff has just been checked out into a folder on your machine. So you can use Pester because you have tests in the project before it even goes out to that server environment where things like build service are going to run. Have you run tests from your workstation that just say the, the quality of this file are what it should be, right? Why even take an ARM template, a, a JSON file that's got errors in it and check it in to source control where it's shared with the rest of my team? Why not have tests that I can run on my workstation that just give me peace of mind so that I didn't introduce any errors before I take this uh, out and share it. So then you would just do something like a git push. And in this case, I'm just going to Visual Studio Team uh, Foundation Services. So um, just going to TFS, but it's a git repo. And I can just do a git push from my workstation. Everything gets checked in. Uh, then we kind of get to see what happens and why this is so interesting for change management. So now if I go to my browser and I'm looking at that project, you can see on my screen here, I've got each check-in or push that has occurred for that project. Uh, my username was TFS1. You can see when I introduced that change. You can see my comments as to what I was intending to change at that point. And then on the right-hand side, uh, you've got this feeling for line by line exactly what changed in this environment. And so it's no longer a guessing game, you know, the way we would fill out a, a form and take it to a change advisory board. Uh, I'm expecting to make this change, and here's the group policies that I want to implement and things like that. Here we're saying you can definitively see what I'm releasing to production. Uh, so that gives you kind of an interesting uh, insight into to what source control would offer. Stephen, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so the, the, the change board thing is a really good point because... Uh, change boards have, uh, they're really not set up for success because there's really very little way that, uh, you know, a group of individuals can 
take on and evaluate in their minds every single change, you know, hundreds of changes that are being thrown at them, right? But when you look at source control and you look at, you know, evaluating a pull request or taking a look at a change that's be, that's being submitted or a potential change set, you can, uh, you're, you're incentivized to keep those change sets small so that you can, you know, easily compare and see what's changing when. You also have a nice historical log of who's changed what when, and, and it can make your change process that much more effective. Uh, the, the state of DevOps report survey stuff that I mentioned before, um, it has also shown that peer review by, uh, you know, another ops person or something else uh, of something going into source control is much more effective than uh, the change management board process. That's interesting. Well, so the next thing that we describe in the paper is the build service, and customers really opened my eyes to this. That that you know, okay, so you put scripts in your source control. Why am I using a build service? Like we think of a build service in application terms as it's going to take source control and then do a, a compile and generate an executable, and then that becomes what we release in the environment. So what does build mean for something like managing infrastructure? And the answer is it's just running the scripts. It's whatever you put in that source control, uh, it's running the scripts. You could look at examples like DSC and say that your build artifact is something like a moth file. But if you're looking at something like an ARM deployment, the build is doing your deployment for you. Now, really, it's just running whatever scripts you put there. Uh, so in this case, I'm going to change over and look at a screenshot of a Saki file. Saki is an, a community-driven project, uh, and it's the idea you might be familiar with make, or uh, for Ruby, there's something similar called rake. And that's just a structure uh, to put into a file that says when a build runs, it should go through these things in this order. Uh, so, for example, for TFS, I actually go through, there's something called a build definition when you create a new project that says what is this going to do when a build happens. I take everything out of the default definition and I replace that with run PowerShell. And then I just point it at one of these scripts. And so... In my PowerShell script, I'm saying, conduct these tests using Pester. And if those tests pass, then it's okay to go on to the next phase. And uh, that might be to create a MOF file or to do an Azure deployment uh, or to reach out to Azure Automation and update a configuration or a module that's stored there. Uh, so we can really think about stretching this in all sorts of different directions. So this Saki file is uh, just a way of organizing that process. If I go back into TFS and I look at, again, that build definition here, you can see I'm just running that same file that I was just looking at. And I have a second step in here, and you're going to see a variety of different configuration options. You know, you might be using Jenkins or Travis CI, things like that. Uh, in all those cases, you're still just going to, if you if you want your project to be really portable, you're still just going to run that first script that we describe as organizing the project. But you might have some interesting additional uh, options. So in this case, TFS has the ability to go collect the test output. So those tests are going to run again, and they might even run additional set of tests on your build environment to verify before we go to production this works the way it's supposed to. In this case, it can go collect that output, uh, which is very nice. In other cases, you might find that in your in something like AppVair that you want to take that output and upload it to the service. So uh, those are some things to think about. If I continue on, you'll see uh, within so what, the build environment. Go ahead, sure. Yeah, one point uh, when you're thinking about uh, a build process or build service, build uh, is nothing more than orchestration. 
And it's orchestration that understands source control by default. And the build agents, the orchestration agents, are typically, uh, if, if they are licensed, they tend to be cheaper than a lot of other orchestration solutions. So, um, you know, a build service is can definitely become an IP ops guy's best friend because it's a great place to stick things that you need to that you need to run in an orchestrated manner. It's true, and if you really want to stretch your brain a little bit, you might have build run orchestration. <laughs> yeah. So that's the really yeah. When you really want to get deep, you think, well, well, some of these things are things that I might have had run books do before. Well, maybe you did, but uh, if those run books are just very predictable, repeatable tasks, you can actually use that to organize those tasks and have build execute through your automation platform some of those orchestration tasks. So uh, it's very interesting to think about where these things start and stop. Uh, so in almost all those platforms, you're going to have some way to store information. And uh, we've seen this before, so you don't want to take... Uh, private information about your organization and store that in your source control because if it ever would end up uh, you know being ported out to something that's open source then you don't want to have things like SSH keys living in your source control uh, that's just a dangerous proposition so a lot of build services have capabilities where you can store variables and inject those at runtime and that's what I'm doing here with TFS uh, you also might want to look at something like Azure Key Vault to store information, and then uh, just put the 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 shared key the, the the shared components as a variable so that you can access those during build. So there's a lot of interesting ways you could approach that. Uh, the same might happen for a local admin password for a server you're deploying, things like that. Uh, yeah, Mike, I got a question. So uh, so you talk about build process, and so you show us like you make some changes. Some workload may be previously available. Now you no longer support it. You take it out, or maybe you add something new. Now, let's use this exchange, uh, this change as an example. In terms of to go out and build, rebuild the process. It seems to me I don't need to run the whole thing. I just need to make sure that this part that impact that uh, is validated. So. If in a you know kind of pretty extensive process, do I need to run the whole thing, or would I be able to just run that part? So uh, I, I I can answer some of this. Uh, so when you're when you're working locally, uh, you're going to run uh, uh, probably a, a smaller scoped set of tests to validate that your change didn't break anything, or that you're you now are you are now actually doing what you expect it to be doing. When you get into the build process, because your uh, and even locally, you might want to do this like once in a while. But once you get into the build process, you definitely want to run that whole gamut of, of tests because, guess what? That one little change on on one project might have implications for uh, you know. If I change a connection string, that's going to have an impact on how my web application performs, right? And even just validating that it's a, a proper uh, connection string doesn't necessarily isolate me from other impacted changes. So uh, you definitely do want to run the full gamut of tests. Now, if you have, how you structure those tests or what that full test suite looks like is really going to depend on your environment. And so that's where you, you as an architect come in to say, all right, these are the things that are logically coupled together, that they have, that when one thing changes, it impacts these other things. And that is, you know, and that's going to maybe encompass one process. 
Uh, and so, so, so I think uh, to to add on that, I think you know, at some point in time, you probably want to regression test the whole thing. Uh, however, I think if you engineer your process, if that pipeline model is is well engineered, then you can determine the scope. Then definitely, you know, within that, within scope, that scope, we need to we build. Need to build. Yeah, you can sort of highlight um, what your changes are in that method. Uh, to give a practical example of what Stephen was talking about, I recently spoke to a customer who's uh, adopting Azure Site Recovery. And so an interesting way that they're looking at it is uh, I take my production environment, I do a backup of those servers into Azure. And so now when I run a build, uh, it's important that my build scripts are item potent so that I can run this whole thing over and over again and trust that it's only going to give me what I'm looking for. Uh, so they might build and release an, an incremental update into production. A week later, they can run a, an, another build that, uh, in terms of scoping, is going to say, I'm not reaching into production. I actually want to uh, fire off some runbooks that turn on the servers that are sitting in Azure that are there in case we need to fail over and release this same set of changes to those. They've already been proven out in tests and then you know in production everything's going well. We sort of had this safety net where if things in production didn't turn out well, we could cut over into Azure. But later, instead of taking a new backup those servers, they just released that same change over into the, the uh, sort of the clone of that environment that's running in a public cloud as their safety net. So I thought that was really interesting. And if you, if you iterate on that one more step, uh, that might even look like having multiple copies in a public cloud so that before you even go to production, you could validate does this cause any problems with my disaster recovery plan? So before I apply this patch, but you know, as part of even understanding the impact to production, I could also validate, does this break any part of my process for disaster recovery? Can I still boot up my backups if I need to? And of course, if you're using a build service, because you have a lot of options for how you can run these things, you, you almost want this to be running all the time. Like you, you don't want to have your people working around the clock to make sure that changes are going to work in production. But you do want that for this platform. Have it running just as often as it can to go validate that uh, in any variety of combinations, different operating systems, different versions of a CLR, whatever the case may be, that new changes uh, aren't going to, to find some way into an environmental anomaly and cause a problem. Cool. So we started with the source control. Uh, then yep. we get into the build. Yes, uh, you can What's see here on my next? screen. You can tell it continuous integration, which means at that point, command and control is your workstation, right? Because you're trusting that your tests are so good that as soon as you do that git push, your tests are going to run. If they succeed, the change is going into production right now. And I think that's very exciting. But normally, I see a little bit more of a conservative approach. So if you're doing something like a maintenance window, you could use a scheduled build to say uh, we, we, we either schedule it to occur maybe on a Saturday at, you know, when, when users are not uh, 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 being part of the environment. Or you could say uh, we're going to run this manually whenever we're ready for the maintenance window. Uh, so and, so, so go ahead. This, is all, this is also a, a point where uh, continu uh, continuous delivery and continuous integration are, are, are and continuous deployment are three separate concepts that are all kind of uh, related. Continuous integration is every time I check in a change to source control, my build process will run. What that actually does 
isn't uh, the the end result of that is some sort of artifact, something that's going to happen, or, or some package that we're going to deploy, or something like that. Continuous delivery is every change to every change to master should be deployable into production. That doesn't mean it's going to be deployable. Continuous deployment is every change goes into production. Every change that passes all the tests goes into production. And so uh, continuous integration is used by continuous delivery. Continuous delivery is used by continuous deployment. And whether or not our continuous integration uh, actually deploys into production is solely a determination of how we create our build script. So whatever we write there. Um, so if we only want it to spin out and do the infrastructure testing and then maybe move those scripts or, or ARM templates or things that have been validated to another environment and deploy them to an orchestration server somewhere that they'll be run in our maintenance window, you can totally accomplish that and have the same build safety that you get by using continuous integration. So it, it's not kind of, it's not this, you know, if I want to turn on the continuous integration, I'm always going to be deploying into production. There are patterns around being able to do that in a safe manner that you can still meet your, you know, your operational requirements. I and think that's cool. Uh, just reach the aha moment. That's <laughs> in the pipeline. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, it, it, and, and that's, so that's the, that is really the beauty of this pipeline is it's, you can add steps. The, the pipeline is your, is your place to add all of your controls and add all your steps and validation. You can add checkpoints for somebody to come and manually review if you have, if you're, requirements need that. You have places to insert your tests for automated verification. You have, you know, stages where you can kick off orchestration or whatever those requirements are, the pipeline is where you can plug those things. Yeah, I, I run into a lot of customers that are using additional tooling that we're not even showing here uh, to get sign off or really it's about visibility. Uh, so does everyone who's working on this project know that a change has happened in production and whenever things re get released? Or if uh, part of this means we release to Q&A and then, you know, we want something like user acceptance testing where we're going to schedule time for the users who use this application to come make sure this change works for them. Um, you see kind of those phases of promoting a release through different phases, uh, through, through different environments. So it's very interesting. Um, I've got on my I think screen. It's quite some obvious of these. now. I see the, the beauty of it. It's like conceptually, it's a it's a source, uh, you know, source built test release. But in actuality, when you actually run it, it sort of like just goes all the way, right? Because it's all highly automated. Right. I imagine. Yes, that's exactly right. That, yes, yeah, so, uh, for a lot of these build solutions, you can see the output if you're watching it uh, manually. So it's kind of exciting to see the scripts that you wrote on your workstation returning the results running on a server. And you can think about how many times have we said, well, it worked okay on my machine. Right? So now you're taking the thing that you know works on your machine, but you're going to go conduct these tests over on this build environment where the environment's different, it's probably a different operating system, maybe it's even going to go spin up some VMs and do validation tests in a variety of different operating systems. So it's very interesting to, to watch these reports. Uh, you know, at the end, you'll be able to see, and you can uh, see my screen now, I can look at the history. So you have the history in source control. When did the change get made into source? 
but in build, you can correlate when did that actually run, did the test pass or not, and if they passed, you know, did the change actually reach in production? So you've got this static record that you can go look at. And this is really interesting from an auditing type perspective. Do we know what changed when? And can we prove to regulatory auditors that we've got a very tight process that results in things going into our environment? And I don't think it gets any better than this, where you can say, I know exactly what these servers look like, and I can tell you exactly when changes happen. So if we move over to test. Uh, the one thing I like to point out here, I mean, test is a huge subject, and I'll, I'll give Stephen a chance to, uh, to talk about something that's of specific interest here, but uh, a lot of these platforms also have reporting capabilities. In fact, there's some open source projects out there. Uh, Pester can return n-unit format. It's just an XML file that describes all the tests it ran and what the output was. There's a lot of different tools available to represent these reports. So when I mentioned before that just that build server can be busy all the time, just validating combinations of things that you might see in production, just running through hours of time that humans were never even capable of. And then you get these reports that your team can go through. Now, obviously here, I've only got four tests. This is a limited example. But I can see exactly what ran, what was the environment type. Uh, and what were the individual tests and what were the results of those tests. I can drill into any specific one of them. Uh, but I want to give Stephen a chance to talk about Test Kitchen because that kind of takes this concept to another level uh, and you can apply it directly to PowerShell environments. Yeah, so, so Test Kitchen is it's an open source project. Um, it's used heavily in the Chef community, but it's, it, it, it's basically a, a test harness and it allows you to put together a method to deploy a, a machine, whether that's Azure, whether it's locally with Hyper-V, whether it's uh, using VirtualBox and Vagrant, whether it's AWS, any, uh, any number of different uh, ways to spin up a, a machine to test against. Uh, Docker, if you want to go, the, if you want to go that route. Uh, but then it adds a way to apply a configuration. And that can be DSC, that could be Chef, that could be Ansible, that could be Puppet, that could be just running shell scripts on it. And, uh, and then you wire in a verifier, some way to test that the machine did what you expect it to do. And so one of the things that, uh, when we're talking about configuration as code, that, that's really important to me is, did the thing do what I expected to do? And not necessarily trusting that the config management tool is a report on what it did is actually what I expect. Um, I don't necessarily trust the tool to tell me that, hey, yes, everything's okay, because I've gotten too many, hey, everything's okay, when it when they're not. So, uh, Test Kitchen allows you to, in a, in a you know, in just a YAML document to define uh, the way to provision that machine, the what what to actually do to that machine, and then how to test it using something like Pester or RSpec or Inspec or ServerSpec, any number of test frameworks that are out there. And then at the end of the things, say, hey, it all, it all worked well, or no, something went wrong. Go, you want to go check this out. And yeah. you can actually integrate that into your build pipeline as your acceptance or integration testing to make sure that those tests, to make sure that all that worked properly. Yeah, you know, I hear from a lot of customers that they have to go through these certification processes for new uh, operating system environments. So they're trying to figure out you know, we see server 2016 coming. We don't know how we're going to get there. We don't know what it's going to look like if we move this application into something like Azure or Azure Stack. 
And so if you go down this process and you've got a good set of validation tests, you could use something like Test Kitchen and say, okay, now I want to op- validate that this application in the current state, because we know what it is because it's defined as code, will work. We, we're Currently, we're in 08R2. Let's test it in 2012R2. Maybe we want to also look at uh, multiple versions of .NET. And by the way, let's go ahead and introduce the technical preview five of server 2016. So now we're yes. sort of working ahead. And you think, like, what are the man hours required, <laughs> the people time, to go validate 08R2, uh, 2012, 2012R2 with multiple versions of .NET, and do we even have time to go look at a technical preview and validate our applications are going to work there? And the answer often was no. We just ran out of time. We didn't have it. So now you can just tell the build service, here's your matrix of things to go test. Use Test Kitchen to go automate that. Uh, and again, it's, you, know, you, can, you don't have to have the physical infrastructure anymore to support that kind of thing. You could use something like Azure, host those virtual machines, and go conduct your tests in the middle of the night whenever your people are sleeping. Yeah. How's that for work-life balance? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've got on my, on my screen just another screenshot. I actually stole this, uh, and I, we can share maybe the, the blog post URL uh, in, the, the, uh, in the show notes. But I love this blog post, and it was just basically uh, building out this process for Active Directory. And, and he's got a great screenshot here that says, here's a whole bunch of tests that just go validate. This Active Directory environment still behaves the way we want it to behave. And what does that mean if you're looking at introducing change? Just that level of confidence, whether you're doing this in test or in QA or in prod. You, know, you might actually, I've talked to some people recently who were thinking about, let's go ahead and uh, have our logs collected into OMS log analytics, and we'll set up some alerts. But as part of that alert stream, we're going to have Azure Automation Runbooks go conduct some of these validation tests that we did at deployment time. So that would help us to narrow down, was this a temporary artifact because there was something to do with the network that maybe already has been resolved, or is something in our environment not the way it's supposed to be, even though we're using configuration as code, we might even be using autocorrect, maybe there's a problem in one of the modules that's supposed to be delivering that environment. So having this combination, sort of a check and a balance, allows us to have confidence and then even get more effective at when are we going to send out alerts and how do we do alert tuning and how do we hand off an alert to someone that's meaningful. Uh, you know, this application is not performing the way we expect. Oh, and by the way, this service stopped, right? Just little things that kind of help us jumpstart that diagnosis. Uh, and the last phase of this whole process is release. Release is like the, the most boring part of the demo and it's the most interesting part of the process because that's where, we're, you know, we're actually making changes. And uh, like we mentioned before, this might go through a promotional phase where you're releasing into a QA environment. You might be releasing into a hybrid environment where some changes need to happen within your data center, but maybe you need to pre-stage uh, some changes in the public cloud that are management services that are going to help with uh, on, they're going to help you maintain the environments that you've deployed within your local data center. So again, a lot of these DevOps tools are just taking very complex ideas and trying to bring them down to as few lines of code that you have to change as possible from project to project and eliminating that snowflake concept. So I really like PS Deploy, but there's a variety of different uh, release type tools out there. And I'll let Stephen talk about that as well. Uh, but this is just a simple one that you know, kind of says, hey, here's a JSON template for an ARM deployment. 
here's the name of a release group, or sorry, of a resource group, uh, and here's a couple of parameters that you need to authenticate to Azure and to go make that possible. Now I can just repeat this over and over again. So I, you know, I'm pulling the same variables. I'm, uh, you know, using the same process, but I can change out what ARM template I'm looking at, and I don't have to recreate that deployment script every time. Uh, so Stephen, I know you've got some interesting uh, release capabilities and Chef as well. Yeah, and well, we have uh, Chef provisioning. Uh, there's also things like HashiCorp's Terraform, or uh, which uh, you know has a great reach across a number of different uh, cloud clouds and vendors. Um, there's some DSC resources that you can use to spin up Azure or Hyper-V nodes, and uh, so there's a number of different tools out there. And again, with the the whole idea with the with the paper uh, was to call out areas of concern, areas of focus, and then you really need to go do some experimentation. And that's what they pay us for as, as IT professionals is to go try these tools, figure out what's going to work best for our workflow. And if something's, if we're bumping into pain with one, hey, that's when we start experimenting with something else. Yeah, that's that open-minded approach. Uh, just being willing to look at any tool out there and think about how it makes us more valuable to our organization. Exactly. Michael, Stephen, that's great discussion you have. You guys are so knowledgeable. And I said, you know, when I grew up, I want to be like Michael and Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great concept. Uh, as an IT professional, I think this will help me uh, to get more predictability, operability in terms of release to production. So, so when I'm going to promote something to production, I can still go go ahead and take lunch, and can, I can still plan my vacation, and I don't need to get my resume ready, is what I'm saying. Oh, <laughs> I man. like this model. And so, again, so source, uh, source, build, test, release. And we're going to start with the source control. Am I on the right track? Yes, that's exactly you, right. Exactly yep. right. <laughs> Great concept. So where do I find this white paper? And uh, I hope everybody got a chance to get down and read it, and we're going to come back and discuss it about uh, so we've got a short code set up. It's just aka.ms slash the release pipeline model. Uh, or if you want something, maybe you're listening to this in the car on the way home from work and you want something shorter, just remember aka.ms slash trpm, the release pipeline model. Uh, either one of those will work. And uh, I welcome feedback. Uh, Stephen and I are both very active on Twitter, uh, and we would love to hear your input. If you're thinking maybe we got it wrong, I would love to hear from you. If you think uh, you know you'd like to discuss this further, or maybe you're implementing this in your organization and it's working well for you, we'd like to hear that, obviously. So uh, I'd, I'd love to continue the conversation. Well, thank you, thank you, Michael, thank you, Stephen, and uh, appreciate you come on the show and give us uh, you know great discussion on this release pipeline model. For your, all you folks out there, go ahead and grab the white paper and. Uh, Digest it, study it, share with it, discuss it, and follow uh, Michael and Stephen in Twitter and send them all those tough questions. For all you guys out there, uh, this is the wrap. <laughs>